Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and we thank you for joining us in this lovely Monday morning. In the studio with us, it's the only living Gearbrand in captivity and down the line from beautiful Rippenden. Beautiful, bu- I like to imagine Rippenden as being bucolic, actually. It's Ollie Kay. Later on, we'll be looking ahead to the last 16 of the Champions League as Jaden Sancho lifted by his meeting with Ollie Kay last week, uh, gets ready to take on Tottenham Hotspur. But there is only one place to start, and that is at the Etihad, where Manchester City returned to the top of the Premier League with a stunning 6-0 win over Chelsea. The champions were 4-0 up inside 25 minutes, Sergio Aguero scoring a hat-trick for the second successive Sunday. Uh, Oli, you were there. It was six. It could have been more. Yeah, it, I mean, I... Well, to... To look at it a slightly different way, I, I thought it felt like Manchester City were almost scoring at will. Really, I mean, in that in that they were so they were so superior, and and they they sort of laid off at times, uh, conserving their energy or, or whatever. But it was um, yeah, you got the impression that if City had wanted or needed to score ten, if it had been the last day of the season and they, they needed to score ten to win the title on goal difference, um, they would have done it because they were brilliant when when they went forward and when they tried to, you know, stretch the city, the, the Chelsea defence, Chelsea had absolutely no answer. It was knife through butter stuff. And, um, yeah, Chelsea were appalling. Um, it was, uh, I mean, had it, had it been, uh, well, any team I'd say is at risk of suffering like that at the hands of Manchester City. I do feel that they are the best team in, in the world at the moment, but, um, Chelsea, having lost 4-0 at Bournemouth uh, recently as well, you think, well, it, it's not just about City's brilliance there. So Chelsea, are, Chelsea are in what uh, several former managers would call a bad moment. Holly, what, what I found remarkable about City, and I guess we'll, we'll get to Chelsea in a second, is when I saw the lineup, it struck me that he made an adjustment for Chelsea, he, he put Gundogan in midfield. He moved Bernardo Silva, who, who I thought was was out of this world, um, out wide. He played Zinchenko at left back. Zinchenko, who hadn't started a Premier League game since uh, December, um, and and he left David Silva on the bench. I, to me, I mean, I think most people would probably say that David Silva is, you know, if he's not City's best player, he's probably in the top three. 
it struck me for what is what was a really big game. Um, not many managers have the confidence to go and make decisions like that. Can you just talk a little bit about that? And I mean, do you have to be Pep Guardiola to and, and have that kind of status that you can make a call like that, knowing that if it goes wrong, nothing's going to happen? Well, you mean confidence in the players, or you mean confidence in, in confidence the in yourself? In, I mean, in yourself. Yeah. yeah well, all, all see. I mean, you know what we in the media are like, right? We pick holes, right? <laughs> so all season long, you know, it's been the Silva brothers in the middle of midfield, and then all of a sudden, you know, you go with with De Bruyne, who's still kind of slowly coming back to injury, and freaking Gundogan in the middle of the park, and you leave leave out David Silva. Now, obviously, it was the right decision. He got it spot on. Blah blah blah. But it's still a big call to make, leaving out your biggest player one of your biggest players in in a huge game it definitely it definitely is i i would say one thing about about david silver he was i thought he was the best player in the in the league for the first few months of the season and he looked a bit tired and and short of his um inspirational best over the last few weeks or the last month or so so i felt he he made sense in that in that he wanted to get to pointer in um and he wanted uh you know maybe to give David Silver arrest. Um, I thought that made sense. Um, obviously, if all is going wrong, he can bring David Silver on. And, and as, as Guardiola said afterwards, he is the best in the world at what he does um, in terms of playing in those tight spaces. And I'd, you know, I'd, I'd be inclined to agree with that, perhaps. But he is. Um, no, I mean, it, the confidence that he has not only in in himself, which somebody like Ferguson had, and Ferguson would make huge calls in in. Um, you know, big matches and leave people on the bench when he didn't expect them to. But the fact that he has so much faith in his players and in his game plan, I think that's what what makes the what makes the difference here. And I thought Zinchenko was perhaps more of a a risk than than dropping David Silva, but it was uh, no, it certainly worked. I thought Zinchenko was absolutely excellent. For me, this this lineup just shows Pep's just complete mastery of his squad. I, I don't think that's too strong a way of putting it. I mean. I was I was reading I can't remember whether it was Sari himself who said it but apparently I, th- I think Sari re- recounted Pep saying to him that in your you know if you're trying to play a particular style of football in your first season you can only really use 14 players because it's just too difficult to teach everyone else but I think what we're seeing in Pep's third season is just someone who is just in total command of his squad who is able to use all the depth of his squad and who is able to use the pieces in so many different ways and so many different positions, you know. You know, we've seen him use Laporte at left back and centre back. We've seen him use Bernardo Silva in the midfield three and in the front three. We've seen him use Raheem Sterling on the left and on the right. You know, we've seen him use Carl Walker at centre back. You know, they haven't even had a proper left back for vast swathes of, you know, the last two seasons. And he's, you know, developed three options there, none of whom are actually left backs, but all of whom basically do the job. So, um, I mean, this is just a man in, in just total command of his, his squad, I think. So he's in command. What about Chelsea, Gab? You, you said of the second half display against Bournemouth that that was embarrassing on this podcast. So what, a, what are you going to say about yesterday's performance? Well, it was, it's weird because I'd argue that apart from the first 25 minutes when they were 4-0 down, you know, they probably played worse in my opinion, against Arsenal, certainly in the last 15 minutes against Wolves away. I think on this one, what what I find striking is if you look at those four goals that they conceded, I mean, Guardiola said afterwards, you know, 
we took four shots and we're three nil up. And the fourth one was the was the chance that uh, the, the the sitter that, that Aguero missed. What I would find worrying here is that the issue here wasn't the old stupid trope that all the ex pros pull out about. Oh, why doesn't Conte play in front of the back four? But but you know, the issue here was really bad individual defending and individual tactical defending. So you know, on on the first goal, where you know Hazard and Alonso fall asleep. And they don't see the run. On the third goal, where Barkley decides to... He's not even heading it back to the goalkeeper. He's just heading it back towards his own goal. Because Kepa was, was actually far away. And he doesn't see little Aguero lurking. On the fourth goal, where I thought Kepa, I would expect him to keep that out. And obviously the second goal is a worldie. So in some ways, they completely fell apart there defensively. And that's not something that we've seen before. Right? We've seen issues where maybe the press didn't work and so on. I mean, he went in to press them high early on, but then when you're when you're four nil down, that kinda that kinda all goes out the window. And if I were sorry, that's the concern. You know, there's no good going out and saying, well, Alonso can't play in a four or whatever. For me personally, I would have had Alonso out of there a long time ago defensively, simply for that reason. I would have had Christensen in there a lot sooner, make him actually had an actual back three rotation. I take your point about coaching the 14 players, Gearbrandt, but these are center backs that we're talking about. But he need, he needs to sort this out because once the, those holes leak defensively as well, then everything goes out the window. You know, he's got enough issues with his press further up the pitch. But this, this is really, really problematic. James, what do you think is going wrong then? One of the challenges for, I think, any team, unless you are the absolute, you know, the level of Man City and arguably even they have to face it is that you know you have bad runs of results and you kind of have to snap out of it basically and stop it kind of building up a kind of massive psychological momentum and I think one team that are absolutely outstanding at that is Tottenham I mean how many sort of mini slumps have they had under Poch but they always seem to be able to you know stop themselves going into a real tailspin and stop you know a sort of mini crisis becoming a full crisis and I think for all its qualities, this Chelsea squad, that is not one of its qualities. It doesn't have that, for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to have that resilience. You know, at Chelsea, crises become crises. You know, if they go into a tailspin, they're in a tailspin. What they really need is a manager, and I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, someone like Pochettino or Klopp, who in public just projects that absolute positivity and belief in the project, in what he's doing, that absolute unshakable conviction that they're on the right path and they'll get there in the end. And I think, I mean, you know, it's obviously just this is one reason among many, but I think at the moment Sarri isn't really doing that. In public, he himself seems quite doubtful about whether he can actually get it to work. And I think I think what we're seeing when, when Chelsea fall apart like this or against Bournemouth is that they don't really, you know, I'm not sure they have that absolute kind of visceral belief and conviction in what they're being asked to do and I think Sarri needs to transmit his own belief in what he's trying to achieve a a bit better. Well it's three defeats in four league games including the 6-0 and a a 4-0 loss as well. Previous Chelsea managers have been sat for less haven't they Oli? Yeah and that shouldn't really be the standard that that is applied to um, the sackings but I I think Chelsea you know it is relevant that, that Generally, well, uh, it's interesting actually. If you look at the, the first few years of, of, of Abramovich or the first sort of five or six years, he seemed to lose faith in managers very quickly. Scolari being an obvious one, um, 
but in recent years, he's almost sort of left them hanging out to dry for, for uh, at times. Mourinho obviously was sacked four months into the next season after winning the league, but it was it was clear from a really early stage of that season that it was broken, it was toxic, and, and he, he gave him until December, which was in some ways creditable, more, you know, probably deserved more credit than, than he got from that, uh, Abramovich. Um, Conte last season, well, that seemed to be more of a, uh, a point of principle where he didn't want to sack him because they were squabbling about payoffs and stuff like that. And Chelsea, as, as James was just saying, it just seems to be a, a club or a, a group of players, even even though the, the players have changed a, a lot over the years, there seems to be this culture where if you're not on it, if you're not in the zone, of, if you're not challenging for the league title, you, you know, they're just treading water at best. Their trophy count is amazing for the last 15 years, but it feels to me like this system of boom and bust is broken, that they do need to do something different. I like the idea of um, hiring Sari to, to bring a new style and, and so on, but it just isn't working at the moment. And whether you blame him for that or whether you look at the players who, to me, aren't playing Sari ball, to me they're not even trying particularly hard to play Sari ball. They're doing a half-hearted version of it the same way that they did a half-hearted version of what Conte wanted last season. I think there's blame with the managers in both of those cases, as there was with Mourinho. But I keep coming back to this group of players who seem capable of just sort of taking their foot off the pedal when 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 things aren't going their way. And that that's what really disappoints me about Chelsea. And what I would hope Sarri does if he survives is just ship some of these players out and stops giving them games and looks at people like Ampadu and Hudson Odoi. Um, a loftus cheek who at least I think will be willing to listen and learn. I think that's a really good point that that Ollie makes. The thing about Chelsea that I think some people kind of sometimes forget is that throughout the Abramovich era, Sarri's only really the second manager who's actually an attack first type manager rather than more of a pragmatist reactive type. I mean, the other one being Andre Villas-Boas and that didn't work out great uh, as as we know. But he's coming on the back of, of two guys who, who, who won league titles, who had a very, very different style. He's inherited a squad of, of older players. And a guy like Azpilicueta, for example, phenomenal in the back three, obviously started out as a fullback. He's simply not the kind of fullback that works in the system. Alonso works as a wingback. I think it's pretty obvious he can't play left back at this stage. Not because he doesn't want to, but because he's simply not quick enough. He's he's really a central defender who's one-footed and puts in a great ball. What all he said about moving people out, you know, you, you've got all these guys who've got a year left on their contracts at the end of the season. William, Pedro, uh, Eden Hazard, of course. So there is an opportunity there, if Chelsea want to, to go and reform the squad and, and maybe give space to people like Ampadu, Hudson-Odoi, if he, if he extends his contract. But the difficulty is a sorry has to earn that chance and he has to earn that chance by finishing top four most likely or at least showing signs of progress and equally i think i think abramovich matters here in the sense that he's had issues with the uk government he's out of the country he's not you wonder to what degree this is still a priority for him which in some ways could work to sorry's advantage but there is a vacuum there there's no director of football anymore you know it's it's basically it's it's marina granovskaya nobody else so it's difficult leadership-wise. The other point I wanted to make about what Gearbrandt said before about the communications, showing the confidence, this is one of Sari's big weaknesses, and he was like this at Napoli as well. 
he's not a media manager. You know, the, the Klopp and Pochettino, when they speak in public, they're confident. You like them. You want to buy into it. Even even Mourinho is much more comfortable in that role. Sorry, does one of two things. He either mumbles inanities or he's far too honest and kind of, you know, the, the, the analogy was made, you know, he speaks in front of the cameras the way he would if he was, you know, out back having a cigarette break. And that's that's not what they need right now. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. The Champions League returns this week with some stellar fixtures in the last 16. Tottenham hosts Borussia Dortmund at Wembley on Wednesday. Oli, you went to see Jadon Sancho last week, which you can read about in The Times on Tuesday. And... Well, he was buoyed by that meeting, clearly, because he scored for Dortmund against Hoffenheim on Saturday. What did you make of him when you met him then, Ollie? Very impressed. Very impressed indeed. Um, you never know quite what you're going to get when you when you interview a sort of teenage footballer. And um, if I had any sort of preconception about him, which which is possibly harsh, it's that I'd known that he'd been sort of very headstrong about about leaving Watford at a young age, leaving Manchester City at a young age. And you almost wonder whether... Somebody like that, who's who's doing that, is maybe being sort of pushed into those moves by an agent or whatever. But he is a really impressive young lad. Um, if I go back, no, this is not this is not to criticise Wayne Rooney, but I remember going to Wayne Rooney's first um, press conference when he when he just um, t- turned seventeen at, at Everton, just signed his first contract and he was he was really like a rabbit headlights at his um, at his first interview and Sancho was Sancho was just natural relaxed very bright and bubbly and and sort of um you know introducing himself shaking hands and and cracking jokes he's clearly really comfortable in in what he, in Dortmund and and in what he's doing and he's doing fantastically well on on, on the pitch I mean just brilliant on the pitch and having met him I'm sort of rooting for him even more. Not necessarily on Wednesday night, but um, but in, in general, um, it, it, it's great to see um, a young lad like that going abroad, taking that risk, making the, the difficult decision um, that a lot of young players don't make and just absolutely thriving. And uh, I think he deserves all the success he's having. Uh, obviously, you're, you're up there closer to, to City than, than we are. How does he compare to Phil Foden, who I presume is roughly the same age, and is there a sense that, you know, City kind of had to pick one to push and you can't really pin this on them as as the one who got away and it would have been, there's no way they could have known when he left that this was going to happen. But, you know, it's just you win some, you lose one. I mean, is that kind of the the story that they're spinning? They uh, they regret what happened with Sancho and they, they feel like they were put in an impossible position by the fact that he just made up his mind he wanted to leave and and they felt like there was no um talking around and i know there was at the height of that sort of contract dispute in the summer of what was it 2017 um guardiola possibly could have made things easy or tried to appease him by taking on the um the, the preseason tour to america and he didn't because of the, i think largely because of the contract situation um so that, that there is a slight sense of uh, city of uh, you know, we couldn't really do anything. But I, I speak to somebody who said he recently about Sancho and say, look, you know, what what do you make of how he's done? Do you think he would be playing yet if he'd stayed? And they said, yeah, definitely. You know, we, we probably wouldn't have signed 
Mares had had he broken into the squad and been contributing really really well towards the end of last season which was the plan to integrate him slowly like that and, and that they felt he would be that they felt he would be offering a lot and, and, and playing I mean clearly not playing as much as he is at, at Dortmund um, but there was also a feeling that you know, you know should he have backed himself to stay and, and try and force his way into the team at, at City and I, I would say no, I, I, I think he's done exactly the right thing. If he wants to be a top player for the rest of his career, I, I, I think the jump he's made from City to Dortmund is only going to make him better. And, and we've seen so many players stagnate, you know, really, really good young players stagnate by not getting as much football as, as, as they need at a high level at 18, 19, 20. And Sancho's doing the opposite. And um, I, I don't think anybody at City should really begrudge him that. We mentioned they scored, of course, at the weekend. It was a strong showing, and there were, it was it was all going very well for Borussia Dortmund, three 0 up gap. But then what happened against Hoffenheim? Well, it's such a weird game because <laughs> in the first half, Hoffenheim were all defensive and were terrible, and they went in two 0 down. Then Dortmund scored again in the second half, and then they hit the post, and then they missed at least two sitters, and then Hoffenheim stormed back and scored three times to make it three three, which you know, well, look, they're playing Spurs, you know, some might call that a bit Spursy, but um, the Dortmund manager, Lucien Favre, wasn't there. Marco Royce, their best player, wasn't there. Those have been cited as mitigating factors. Um, I personally think it's one of those things um, where, you know, it's not down to youth, it's not down to mental weakness. I think the real challenge for them will be whether this affects them going forward, On uh, you know, that they drop those two points, and I actually don't necessarily think it will because of the environment they put there, because Favre is such a good veteran coach that they can metabolize this. What's going to be interesting looking ahead to the to the Tottenham game is, so defensively, they've had a whole bunch of, of center-back pairings, and they've generally all been very young, but they really miss Manuel Akanji, who, um, who arrived last year. He's injured. He might be back for the return leg, had a hip problem. I think that is something that Spurs can definitely exploit. He's been playing Julian Weigel there instead. Julian Weigel is not a central defender. He's he's tall and he's German, but he's he's really more of a midfielder. And it's pretty obvious when you see them play. Now, they, again, they've had injuries elsewhere, so they're a bit undermanned there. But I think that's something that, that certainly Tottenham can exploit, that they are substantially weaker, I think, in that role than uh, than they should be. Well then, let's focus on Tottenham, who secured their fourth league win on the spin when they beat Leicester 3-1 at the weekend. But James, expected goal stats said something very different. Well, I think expected goals had it almost had it almost exactly the other way around. I think it was pretty much 3-1 three, three, to Leicester on the expected goals. I think Opta had it as something 0.8 to Tottenham and 3.1 to Leicester, something like that. But uh, Tottenham have been outperforming expected goals by quite a large degree all season, really. Um, Are you calling them lucky? I don't know if I would say lucky necessarily, but uh, certainly at the attacking end of the field, their finishing has been running hot all season long, really. Particularly, I think, Son Heung-min Son is having an outstanding finishing season. I think he's got something like 10 or 11 goals in the league from about six and a half expected goals. They're having, they're having a, maybe, maybe a, bit, a bit lucky at the back, but I think they're having, they're having a strong finishing season. Ollie, what do you think of Tottenham? Are they riding their luck or are they showing some spirit? Certainly spirit and, and mentality and bottle and all that kind of thing gets mentioned a lot with Spurs. 
I see I see plenty of those attributes when I watch them. Um, if, if you look at how well they're doing, I think one twenty out of twenty six. Am I right? Twenty out of twenty six, an extraordinary amount in a normal season. You wouldn't be five points adrift with that. You would be you would be top or, or, or very 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 close to it. That's what Spurs are up against. They might well. I mean, my my prediction with Spurs all season has been that they are going to finish with by far the highest points total for any third place team in, in, in English football history. I, I really think that's going to happen. Whether they can get any higher just possibly depends whether um, the bar is going to be set any lower by Manchester City and Liverpool. And, and looking at this weekend, you you think probably not. You think maybe the the points that Spurs have dropped already might be the ones that cost them. See, I don't know. I don't... Again, this was a horrendous performance. This was a game where they did ride their luck, and you can praise the spirit and finding, gutting it out and finding a way to win, blah, blah, blah. I think it's been pretty much unreal what they've achieved without Ali and, and, and Harry Kane. It's not automatic that the minute that those guys come back, and they won't be back, I think, until next month, that all of a sudden they're going to go in and, you know, hit the ground running because they would have been out a while. I would worry about Christian Eriksen and simply the workload that he's taken on and the games that he's taken on and his contractual situation. I mean, they may yet finish third, but I don't know. That To me, the signs point to them dropping off and not maintaining this pace the rest of the season, especially if they somehow knock Dortmund out of the Champions League, which is, which is certainly, you know, far from impossible. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. For in-depth analysis of the Champions League, visit thetimes.co.uk slash sport and watch Tom Clark and Charlie Scott dissect the tactics of Paris Saint-Germain and Borussia Dortmund. Well, before the game at Wembley, we'll be treated to Manchester United against Paris Saint-Germain on Tuesday night at Old Trafford. 
PSG's phenomenal front line of Neymar, Mbappe and Cavani will be depleted. Neymar will miss both legs through injury and Cavani picked up a thigh problem after scoring the winner against Bordeaux on Saturday. That could rule him out as well. And Ollie, given their current form, if Neymar and Cavani are missing, could this even make United favourites for this? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm not saying that... I mean, I, I don't go for the idea that, that PSG are a, a three-man team and that, that, that unless those three are playing, that they're struggling. I mean, if you look at whoever's like to come in, I mean, there's Mbappe, there's Di Maria, there's Draxler, Verratti, etc. It's not exactly a weak squad. The, the big thing for me is that Manchester United are on, on the crest of the wave. They've been so good for the last six weeks um, under... Under Sasha, I thought their performance at Fulham, albeit yeah, it's only Fulham, was really, really good. Pogba, one of the best performances I've, I've seen from him in, in in England, absolutely dominant, free flowing, confident performance. And I think United can can win on Tuesday night and and become favourites for the tie. And I don't think anybody would have said that when the draw was was made in in, in December. I mean, one of the big things with PSG is that for for all the money and the bluster. They're obviously taking financial fair play seriously, um, which is why they have such a tiny squad and which is why Eric Chupo-Moting is their first option off the bench. Um, Mbappe's going to move to center, center forward. Presumably, he'll play with uh, Draxler and Di Maria either side of him. Not terrible, but you know, Draxler's had to play in central midfield because all their midfielders have been out. Marco Verratti's back. He, he played about an hour last week, but you don't know if he's going to be match fit. Leandro Paredes just arrived from Zenit, so at least they have two warm bodies in midfield. Adrian Rabio, who's supposed to play a big part this season, is is on the naughty step for his 10 millionth contractual dispute. <laughs> um, so they are seriously depleted and undermanned, and they had put all their eggs in the Champions League basket, and to have to go into this without Neymar and, and Cavani I think is huge. And just, just quickly on United... I thought it said a lot about Solskjaer's confidence that I think his primary brief was to get United into into the top four this season. And admittedly, it's only Fulham away, but he felt so good about his squad that, you know, he took the liberty of, you know, a lot of managers, they all get a little superstitious and stuff. And like, we're flying, you know, we're not going to change things around. But instead he went and, you know, he, he had Lingard on the bench he rested Rashford and uh, and Lindelof. You know, he played Smalling, who hadn't played in a couple months. Uh, he had Lukaku and Mata involved. I think that sent a really strong message that, again, he has confidence in his own abilities that he can go out and I can change things around in this game against Fulham away from home to give myself a bit of an edge in the Champions League, have some more rested players. And that's another really encouraging sign of what's going on at United. So, James, is the stage set for Paul Pogba, do you think? Yeah, I, mean, I, think, it, I think it absolutely is. I mean, his form is just is absolutely incredible. I mean, I think in his last nine league games, it's eight goals and three assists from, you know, yeah, attacking midfield, but, you know, but essentially central midfield, which is just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, he's, he's got to be, you know, probably the four midfielder in Europe. Um, you know, why, why would the stage not be set for him, really, on, on this kind of form? But And I think... You know, to to extend that point slightly, I think, you know, I, I know you talked about Solskjaer and whether he should get a permanent job last week. I think for me, the the improvement in the performances of of Pogba and Rashford, to me, that's Solskjaer's strongest argument. You know, I mean, I think it's getting to the stage where I think, you know, Pogba at the moment is performing a little bit too well. 
for you to just simply say, well, this is sort of Pogba's baseline and this is kind of how he'd perform under anyone who, you know, wasn't a complete, you know, didn't just treat him <laughs> awfully. Um, He's having a pub at you, Jose, in case you're... <laughs> um, if you think anyone could have got those performances out of Pogba and Rashford simply by kind of restoring, you know, a slightly less toxic atmosphere around the club and sort of, you know, making everyone play with smiles on their faces, then, which is an argument, then I think that probably weakens Solskjaer's case. But if, on the other hand, you think that he's really kind of unlocked something, Pogba obviously still being quite young and Rashford being very young, you know, they're arguably your two biggest potential stars of seasons to come, then, I mean, that is a really strong argument in Solskjaer's favour. Well, last week we used Roberto Di Matteo as an example in comparison to the success Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has enjoyed as caretaker manager. Di Matteo, of course, won the Champions League with Chelsea. Solskjaer couldn't. Could he gap? I was looking at this. I think United were something like 11th favourites going in. But obviously Cavani's absence is potentially a game changer in addition to, uh, uh, to, to, to Neymar. So if they get past them, if you look at the teams that have shorter odds and are uh, are ahead of them. Atletico Madrid play Juventus. Liverpool play Bayern. Spurs play Borussia Dortmund. So those are you know at least three other big contenders going out. And if you look at the ingredients that you need to win a Champions League, I think having a shutdown goalkeeper who on his day can can keep you in game single handedly and you know check United have that and a superstar that can carry you and conjure stuff. Out of very little, and United have that as well. Throw in the fact that apart from Manchester City, none of Europe's big teams have really been firing on all cylinders, um, you know, for for the last month or so. And yeah, it's definitely not beyond the the realm of of possibility. Maybe we'll even have a, a Manchester derby in the final. Time now for our weekly predictions game, where last week, Gab, you were victorious, reducing the deficit to 12-7 in my favour this season. It was a feast or famine, though, for us this weekend. Neither of us predicted a Real Madrid win away at Atletico in the Madrid derby, Gab. And neither of us called a Burnley win away at Brighton on Saturday, although I think we should both get a little asterisk for that because, let's face it, Brighton got absolutely jobbed. Still, despite it being Natalie's wheelhouse, I correctly predicted that Steve Bruce's first home game in charge of Sheffield Wednesday against the mighty Reading of the even mightier Jose Gomes would finish in a scoreless draw. So there's me getting an extra five points because, you know, Natalie gets bonus points when she when she picks European games and I get bonus points, right? Charlie, am I right? We'll discuss that law change. Uh, A law change to be discussed at a later date. However, I responded by predicting the exact scoreline at Selhurst Park. 1-1 that finished between Palace and West Ham, which meant, Gab, it all came down to Sunday afternoon at the Etihad. Gab, you went for the draw. (laughs) Oh dear, that was far. I was right for about the first four minutes. Uh, I predicted a City win. Needless to say then, I restore my lead. It's 13-7 to me. But that's only if I'm not assigned the bonus points for getting the the, the championship game, what? what what what's wrong with that? Why, why, why are you snubbing why the championship? You, why do you, why would I not get five points for the result at Selhurst Park? Because that's in the Premier League. We cover the Premier League. Okay, enough of this predictions nonsense. How about some uh, quick hits? Liverpool roll over Bournemouth three 0 but more than that, 
they actually play really, really well. Um, maybe their best performance uh, in a victory. They did play well against City uh, when they lost. Uh, since that 5-1 uh, against Arsenal, which was way back in December. Ollie, is this normal service resuming? Well, I don't think it was that abnormal that uh, a team finally drops four points in, in two games after, you know, you can't expect the, the pace they were setting to be to be maintained all season. They, they had those couple of hiccups. They were all saying, oh, they've lost their ball, they've lost their Yeah, but they played badly against Brighton and against uh, Palace when they won. That's my point. They've, they've not played well since yeah, December. Yeah. No, well, uh, the, their squad has been very their squad has been very stretched. They looked far more like themselves on, on Saturday, even, even with a, you know, still with a few sort of square pegs and round holes. Wijnaldum was the one who, who really stepped up, in, in my opinion. And Mane, I'm not just saying that because they, they scored the goals, but those two have been absolutely excellent this season. Um, I know Salah and others will get more will, will get more praise, but, but those two, um, not just with, with the goals they scored, but, but the, the intelligence that, that they show in those roles, uh, I think are so important to Liverpool and will be vital if, if they are to keep up with, with Manchester City. Arsenal overcome Huddersfield on the road 2-1. But George Colkin, well, he was unimpressed. They have yet to keep a clean sheet away from home this season. James, are you seeing any progress at all? I mean, their, their ability to not keep clean sheets is, is kind of remarkable. I think in the Premier League, only Fulham, who are comfortably the most shambolic defensive side in Europe, have fewer clean sheets than Arsenal this season. I mean, they're not that bad defensively. They're not the 19th worst, you know, defensive team in the league. I think their defensive stats are kind of, they're sort of all right. They're not amazing. But I think they're doing some things well under Emery. But defensively, there are a a lot of questions, I think. Natalie, one for you. Nathan Jones was described to me when he left to take over Stoke as as some kind of genius who had single-handedly restored Luton's fortunes. How are they getting on since his departure? Not bad at all, to be fair, Gav. Yeah, so it wasn't him. Well, I don't know. I mean, they've equaled their, their club record of 19 league games unbeaten. That was with a 3-0 victory over Wickham on Saturday, a record that has stood for half a century. So since Jones has left, they've risen to the top of League One. Who needs Jones? Exactly. Obviously not Luton. You don't, because they are currently six points clear at the top of the table. And they've done it without appointing a permanent manager as well. It's the club legend Mick Harford, who's been in caretaker Ooh. charge, has overseen five wins and a draw from his six games in charge. It's also the best start by any manager in Luton's history. And, of course, if Luton were to go up into the Championship, it would be back-to-back promotions for them. Doing very, very well they are without Nathan Jones, so they don't need him. Is Mick Harford continuing with Nathan Jones? Jones's brand of football? I think so, yeah. They're still playing really exciting football at Kenilworth Road. So, yeah, one to watch. Brighton lose at home to Burnley, but referee Stuart Atwell and his assistants fail to notice Jeff Hendricks' blatant handball, which came seconds before Burnley were awarded a penalty at the other end. Ollie, was that one of the worst decisions of the season? Um, Most certainly was. I mean, I I, I find myself um, exasperated at times by the, the way people blame referees for everything and, and call them, you know, corrupt or, or incompetent and refs have such a difficult job but that was such a terrible decision if you haven't seen it. Um, Hendrick almost sort of, well, it's like he must have controlled it with his arm and, and knocked it onto himself um, to, to trigger the counter-attack that led to the um, penalty at the other end. It was, it was one of the clearest handballs you could ever see. It was impulsive but, but deliberate and it was 
inexplicable really that the ref missed it and um, yeah this is one of those referee um, decisions that I would not be saying I could understand uh, Ollie just a quick follow up on this just because Sean Deitch so helpful in uh, in lecturing everybody about diving and cheating and creeping into our game and the foreigners blah 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 and I want to grow up to be Neil Warnock one day um, this is cheating this is this is the equivalent of a dive I mean, do you think it is equivalent to to, to diving? I know that I know, I know people say, "Well, how is it any different?" I think diving is is something you do to make it look like somebody's failed you. I think if you if you get away with handballing yourself, I this is something you that, do to get I, it. Do you remember Luis Suarez at the World Cup in yep, in South yeah, Africa? In, yeah, remember, yeah. he was absolutely crucified, and he got caught. <laughs> I, I, I thought I thought it was bizarre that that he was crucified. I mean, he. he Suarez, because he, he, he humbled it. It was a strategic, uh, impulsive act to, to stop that on the line. You run the risk. It's going to be a penalty. It's going to be a red card. And they missed the penalty. And I could understand him being gleeful, even if, even if his um, delight didn't um, didn't go down well. But the, the, I mean, that's, it's a different case, the Hendrick one. But I don't think you could ever expect somebody to say, no, do you know what? I, I handballed it there. And I don't think it's as, it's as premeditated something that you're conditioned to do in the same way that a dive is. Watford, Sean Deitch's old club, by the way. It's a smooth transition. Like we, 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 we plan these out. Mm-hmm. Watford greeted uh, Marco Silva and Everton with inflatable snakes, the idea being that Marco Silva is a snake. Not a rat, a snake. There's no love <laughs> lost there. And then Watford win 1-0, and it could have even been more. Gearbrandt, Everton have lost five of their last six and look to be in free fall. I'm still hanging on to the Marco Silva bandwagon uh, because I remember his time at Hull and I think he has something to give. But it seems to me that everybody's jumping off with a bunch of other people saying that he's just some weird foreign construct and is actually rubbish. Yeah, I mean, Everton are, Everton are really struggling at the moment, aren't they? I think um, Richarlison has, has dried up a little bit in recent weeks and I think he had kind of... Uh, been covering that sort of lack of you know a sort of real goal scoring centre forward or put another way without him they they lack a sort of reliable source of goals it's tough and I think I think another thing about Silver is that kind of sort of in the same way as as you know our old friend Claude Puel Silver is not sort of great at sort of kindling sort of great reserves of public goodwill to fall back on. Gab, lastly, one for you then. Real Madrid won the derby against Atletico. Does this mean the title race is back on in La Liga? Well, Barcelona drew on Sunday because over the last six weeks they've become a totally messy dependent team and and could have lost that game if not for some great uh, saves from from Marc-Andre Ter Stegen. You know, there's a Clásico at the Bernabeu, and the Real Madrid win it, it's three points, and I think it's entirely possible. It's remarkable, and I wrote about this in my column this week, this is arguably their best performance since the quarterfinal away to Juventus in the Champions League last year, and it's remarkable what he's done um, in Santiago Solari, because he's he's taken over, benched Isco, he's had the courage to, to bench Marcelo as well, for this kid, Sergio Rigolon, he's put his faith in, in Vinicius. He's handled Gareth Bale's weird up and downs. And he's just shown a ton of personality. Uh, and he's made big decisions. Big decisions, which, by the way, Zinedine Zidane, I mean, as great as he was when he took over, Zinedine Zidane just kind of managed the veterans. He's had to actually go and 
bring in new players and move things around. It would be a tremendous story if, after what they've been through, get back into it and really, I think, be an indictment of Ernesto Valverde and, uh, and Barcelona. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to our excellent guests, Mr. James Gearbrandt, and, of course, the inimitable Ollie Kay. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We're going to be back on Thursday looking ahead to that exciting FA Cup fifth round as Manchester City travel to Newport County, a city up against an entire county. Should be a close one. (laughs) The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.